Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 33. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about Coast Salish archaeology. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute Treaty lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland. On today's episode, we have Karen Rose Thomas. Karen is currently finishing up her master's degree at the University of British Columbia, where she focuses on stone tool analysis and anthropological archaeology in the Pacific Northwest Coast. She received her bachelor's with honors in archaeology and a certificate in cultural resource management from Simon Fraser University. She has worked for the Museum of Anthropology at UBC, the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, and Simon Fraser University. She has received the UBC Wilson Duff Memorial Scholarship, the UBC Aboriginal Graduate Fellowship, the Irving K. Barber BC Aboriginal Student Award, the UBC Graduate Student Initiative Award, and the Inspire Building Brighter Futures Award. She additionally serves as the Tsleil-Waututh representative on the Museum of Vancouver's Board of Directors. So welcome to the show, Karen. Thanks so much. All right, so I'm very excited to talk to you today. And looking through your your CV, there's there's lots of good stuff that I want to get to. But just to start us out, how did you get into this field? Okay. Um, well, I joke always that it was um, fortuitous. It came at a time where I... Um, I was working at Starbucks as a barista and Starbucks was like the job that I always went back to when I just needed something that I could do without thinking. Um, and I received a call from my cousin who um, asked if I was busy the next day, which um, was a Wednesday in August. And uh, I wasn't working. I wasn't on the schedule. So she she was like, um, do you have steel toed boots? Do you want to do this thing? I need a body. And I was like, I don't have boots. So she gave me a steel toed boot allowance for $50. And I found one pair of boots in in my size um, for forty nine ninety five. <laughs> That's bought the boots and right and well, I, my feet are size eleven women, so that is also impressive. But I showed up <laughs> the next day at the muster spot and I found um, my aunt, um, my mother's sister, um, drinking her tea and waiting for our carpool. And it turned out that this opportunity was um, was a site safety orientation for an archaeological mitigation project for the South Fraser Perimeter Road, which is a big transportation corridor um, here. And it goes along the uh, south shore of the Fraser River. And it impacted two um, really well-known sites in the region um, with really old dates. So like 5,000 to 8,000 years before present, um, the St. Mungo Cannery site and the Glen Rose Cannery site. And so this road was like a Ministry of Transportation. It was a government road and it impacted these sites under like the provincial laws that like they needed to have reps um, from the local nations. And there were, I guess the seven local nations that were involved all sent people to this project to make sure that our, our protocols were respected essentially. And also to learn a little bit about archeology. span So this is a site safety orientation and it was really cool. And I worked the one day and I got free boots um, and then I went back to work at Starbucks and I didn't really hear anything for for like a month. And then uh, my cousin called back and was like, hey, do you want to 
do you want to try two weeks out on this site? Um, so I begged my store manager for time off the schedule and I went out to be like a field rep for my nation on this project. And I totally fell in love and I was like, this is really exciting. And I think this is like a thing that I want to do for a while. I ended up taking like a whole Wait, month okay. off. Sorry, before you keep going, what does it mean to be a field rep for your nation? Well, basically under federal law, there's like a, a law to the duty to consult. So anytime that there's any development that happens within our asserted traditional territories, government entities are supposed to consult with the nations. And then um, the nations can say, well, we want to have someone present if this is like an archaeologically significant site. Uh, we want to have a field rep present. And so we work with um, whatever archaeologists are contracted um, for whatever project um, to make sure that our cultural protocols are respected. In this circumstance, we a large part of our role was protecting ancestral remains. So these archaeological sites were disturbed like they had been previously disturbed by um, the building of a bridge that crossed the Fraser River, but but there were still um, fragmented ancestors present in the archaeological deposits. So we were there to make sure that the cultural protocols of working, of dealing with uh, ancestral remains were respected and that everything was done in, in a good way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds very much the same as like a tribal monitor here in yeah, the US. Yeah, so I guess monitors are, are what we do, but we're also like brute labor. I, I shoveled a lot of sand. Like um, I had never worked okay. outside. So it was totally this learning curve for me of like, is my gear enough? Will I be warm? Um, I learned how to layer. Mm -hmm. Like I had, I had never worked outside before. So it was like a big switch for me um, from like barista land. <laughs> but... <laughs> But that would have been in like September. And then I think uh, I started thinking about university like by October. And then Starbucks just was like, uh, you're never coming back, are you? And I was like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> so they just like yeah. issued me my yeah, yeah. walking papers. And then um, I applied and was accepted to university. And uh, they wanted to know if I wanted to start in January. And I was like, no, I'm still working on this project. So we worked all through the winter like wet screening and we worked all through in the winter Canada. in <laughs> Canada. Um, it was very cold. There were icicles and wind and we were right on the Fraser river too. So it was just this brutal wind and yeah, it was an interesting experience. <laughs> um, and then everyone's <laughs> like, cause it was very, um, it was very archeologically rich and, and there was just this, uh, like a really wide range of, um, objects that we were finding and then like actual fragmentary human remains, like, um, that was a large part of the project, but everyone's like, don't measure the rest of your career against this site because <laughs> you're never going to find deposits like this. Like, so anyway, I, I started university the next summer and I worked part-time in the lab for my first term. So I eased into school because I had been out of school for about 10 years and just like working to live and, and living to work or whatever, um, that phrase is, but and then I, I worked in the lab all summer, um, helping deal with all of the artifacts that we had found and had found and preparing them to be sent to like their final repository. And then, yeah, I, I uh, started my undergrad and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, got yeah, there's always so many places I can go with all of this. But I guess let's let's just keep moving forward. Um, can you tell us more about your undergrad program? I mean, first of all, Simon Fraser University, I feel like is is well known for for this type of of archaeology. And also this this um, cultural resource management certificate. That's something that you don't see much. So I'm, I'm curious about that. I think that the program at SFU, like, uh, it's really special because it's really highly specialized and it's very, uh, lab based. So where someone doing like an anthropology degree with a specialization in archeology span from any other university, they might have maybe one lab course 
like under the four field approach, there's so much anthropology involved. Um, Simon Fraser is special because the archaeology department is completely separate from anthropology. It's under the faculty of environment. So it's totally different and independent. And I think that it's a unique opportunity because, you know, I took lab courses in uh, mapping and lithics and osteology. And I, I, have this really well-rounded degree and the cultural resource management program I joke is designed to pump out cogs for the CRM machine. Um, but it's really true (laughs) because like their graduates are, are employable like immediately after, um, after graduation. But like, I, I struggle a bit with the ethics of like the resource extraction CRM field because so many of these, enterprises don't consult with First Nations or consult minimally with First Nations here in BC, especially because so much of our archaeology is resource extraction archaeology. And then, yeah, um, when I start to think of those ethics, sometimes it's just, it makes me angry. So I try not to, I wish there was a better way to do it. And I think that SFU does a great job of trying to instill like Indigenous allyship in its graduates. But you get what you put into it, right? And I'm I don't know, <laughs> trying to I'm trying to say this nicely, but like I don't think that everyone has uh, First Nations best interests in mind when they enter the field of CRM, right? It's very much a business. And I'm sure you can right. you can attest to that. Absolutely. I think I mean definitely you see that in with CRM companies here in the US that I mean, there's not requirements for CRM companies themselves to work with tribes. You do see it a decent amount in the U.S. Southwest. I feel like we're a little bit better maybe than some of the other regions, but it's not a requirement. So there's plenty that don't do it and have no experience talking to tribes or interacting with tribes. And part of that is, I don't know how it works exactly in Canada, but in the U.S., Again, um, it's the federal requirement, like you were saying, to consult with tribes. So if it's a um, you know Bureau of Land Management project, a National Park Service project, a, a U.S. Forest Service project, that agency is the one that has to consult with the tribes, even if it's a CRM firm doing the work. Yeah. So there's like a disconnect there. But then, you know, like if it's a private development, if it's... Oh, if it's somebody's personal property, it's less. Um, right. Yeah. Right. There's no, yeah. <laughs> um, there's no requirements necessarily for the CRM firm to do it. So they don't have a reason to unless they already have that relationship established because of other things or, you know, like unless the tribes are going to hold them to it or. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. No, yeah. So anyway, I mean, I love SFU. And I think to follow that with a discussion of my master's program here at UBC, archaeology is firmly ensconced in the anthropology department. And mm-hmm. on the one hand, I really appreciate the opportunity to explore the people behind the stuff, because I think that's what this this graduate training in anthropology has allowed me. Um, but I also really struggled for the first year with the very colonial attitudes of anthropology and the, the mm-hmm. colonial history in the past and of like a four field department. And so I feel like I could have even though I did a, a minor in anthropology in my undergrad, I could have benefited from more of a classical approach, knowing that I was going to come here and do archaeology in anthropology. Like I definitely struggled mm-hmm. in my first year of this master's program, but I also showed up eight months pregnant. So that might just be my own <laughs> fault. Like that'll do it. <laughs> it's a whole nother topic, this parenting and and post-secondary thing. But. So, okay. Okay. Well, lots of questions there. So first of all, what made you, so you, you had a, ma- a bachelor's degree and the certificate in CRM. So what made you feel like, okay, I need to take that next step and get a master's. So that a and B like, what, what do you think it was that made you come more face to face with that in the the master's program versus the bachelor's like what was there something different about the university or just like 
maybe with the four field approach, it was a little more like theoretical, which like when you're looking at the practical stuff, it's easy to miss a lot of the colonial nature compared to like when you are looking at like the history of theory and things like that in the field. Yeah, I think what made me want to do more was like, I guess I waited so long after high school to start university because like, I always knew that I wanted to go. I just didn't have a thing to do. And then when I found archaeology, mm-hmm. I was like, hey, this is super cool. And I could do this. You know, and looking back now after being in school for seven years, it's like, this is the longest I've stuck with anything, you know, aside from parenting, mm-hmm. but I kind of didn't have a choice at that. Um, like I made that choice early on and obviously have to follow through. But most most of the jobs that I had between high school and university it didn't really stick around longer than two years. Two years seemed to be my my cap of like, okay, two years, I'm done. Um, with the exception of Starbucks, because they just kept taking me back because I was good at what I what I did there. <laughs> right. And I think with when I finished my undergrad, like I was determined that I would make an impact. And I really like my goal in starting a master's program was that I wanted to work to challenge some of the assumptions that archaeology has here on the Northwest Coast. And I figured that the only way people would listen to me, you know, people in the field would listen to me is if I had the the training of graduate work um, and the fancy letters yeah. after my name. So right, I was hoping right. that it would add some authority to my, to my passionate rants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's like... That's been the biggest drive. And I struggled a lot with anthropology theory and like the history of anthropological thought. It's like a required course. And we do a little bit of of archaeology theory in undergrad, but nothing like this one year intensive. And so, you know, it's a a year long journey of, of just the evolution of the field. And I think in my undergrad, I was able to sort of distance myself from the colonial nature of it and say like, well, archaeology is newer and, and look at a, look at my department. It's working collaboratively with like first nations, my own included. And, and, you know, um, with tribes in the States and they're doing all sorts of like really great work in archaeology. But at the same time, like, I think I still always thought about like, hey, they're destroying grave sites to get at the goodies. And like, that's where archaeology came from. But I always tried to, I guess maybe I ignored that part of it, thinking about the good work that the archaeology appeared to be doing with tribes in the present. Mm -hmm. And like the history of anthropology, it's really hard to read a bunch of authorities in one's own field writing about the savage other and and then like the the attitude of of salvage ethnography on the coast which i'm sure you're aware of as like oh, an yes. ethnographer mm-hmm. but right. the way that they wrote you know and and since i've in the last year in some of the classes i've taken as electives like i've i've come to terms with like the good that ethnography can do but but when you're just mm-hmm. reading that stuff that's published where they thought that we were all going to die and they needed to document right. our dying cultures and collect all sorts of specimens you know the, the museum collection era and that salvage ethnography era or two big factors i think in my struggle to deal with the history of anthropology. And like, I joke around and I call it colonial angst, but like, there's a lot of anger, right? And some of it's mm-hmm. misplaced in, in, in like the current discipline. But at the same time, it's like anthropology is very privileged and, and people study anthropology and they get really big grants and they fly around the world and they immerse themselves in, in foreign cultures and learn languages and and then they write a book that that no one from those cultures is supposed to read. Like, I think there are, I'm generalizing now, there are good an- anthropologists who do good things and the work that they do in faraway places. But when I feel jaded, all I see is white anthropologists producing books and papers for other white anthropologists to consume. And yeah. It's tough, I think, because that's always how it's been. And when you read ethnography from the coast, 
none of these ethnographers ever thought that the communities about which they are writing would ever read these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, yeah, it's been a journey. I, <laughs> I've only, <laughs> I've managed to get through it, I think, um, by taking amazing electives like, uh, I guess, um, the first nations and indigenous, um, studies, FNIS, I think that's what they call it out here. That department, they have some amazing classes. So I've taken a couple of really great classes with um, Professor Dr. Dory Nason, and she is amazing. Um, I took an Indigenous Feminisms class and a Graduate Methods, which focus a lot on decolonizing um, research methods. And both of those classes, like, tempered my my really rough trip with, with, uh, anthropological theory, I guess. So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I'm lucky to have those classes like balance. Right. But since you mentioned salvage ethnography, I do kind of want to throw something in here and I know I've said it on the podcast before, but it's something that really bothers me, honestly, is that I feel like there still is a lot of that mentality in people, you know, like not so much, oh, they're going to die out physically, but oh, basically what they knew of their culture is already gone. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to discount like, again, the the boarding schools, the residential schools, um, the genocide, you know, bef- and say that there wasn't like a huge loss of knowledge forced on tribes. But at the same time, I feel like it's kind of an excuse not to work with tribes sometimes. And quite frankly, like, sure, somebody might not know how to do like that specific thing anymore. But the important thing is the mindset. Um, So like, if you ask a white archaeologist about something, and you ask a tribal representative about something or First Nations, you're going to get very different responses. And the perspective is the important part, in my in my opinion. You know, it's going to be a lot closer to what it was because um, there is a continuity of culture, even if it's not like specific little details than, you know, an academic talking about something. And the other thing is, I mean, again... American culture doesn't look like it looked 100 years ago. Why would you expect Native American, First Nations, indigenous cultures around the world to look the same that they did 100 years ago? I mean, it just culture doesn't work like that. Culture is dynamic. So if you're saying like, oh, they don't know how to ride horses anymore. Well, do you ride a horse still? Like, (laughs) I mean, that's not um, the dynamic nature of culture is part of what makes it authentic, not part of of what makes it, you know, something that you can throw away, basically. This is Jessica jumping back in later. There was one more thing that I wanted to add after thinking more about this part of this conversation. And that's that sometimes when people say, I don't know, when you're asking questions, sometimes that's a polite way of saying, I'm not telling you. (laughs) Um, So that's something to think about as well, that, that sometimes I don't know really means I don't know you well enough to know that I can trust you with that information or you haven't earned that kind of information yet or culturally you're not the kind of person that I can tell that information to. A lot of times people will say, oh, you know, they they just don't know. You know, you ask them about things and they just always say, I don't know. And that may not actually mean that they don't know. That just might mean that you haven't shown to them that you're going to keep showing up and keep sharing what you learned with them or behaving respectfully or whatever they need to see from you in order to know that you're the kind of person that that they can share that information with. Or again, just that you're not part of that clan or you're not the right gender or you're not whatever kind of person that it's appropriate to share that information with. So just another thing that I wanted to throw out there for, for people to think about and just for people to remember that tribes and first nations that they don't owe you information. We're at our first break point, but we can get back here in a minute. 
Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And we are back. So, okay, um, we were talking a little bit about your master's program and the start of it. Let's keep going with that. How did how did it shift after that initial, um, you mentioned, first year of struggle? Well, it goes with what you were just talking about, um, that mentality that indigenous cultures or First Nation, Native American cultures stopped evolving or were like watered down by, by contact. So I showed up to my MA program thinking that I was going to explore um, the ritual properties of ochre, uh, which are, um, ochre is a mineral pigment that's used for many things here on the coast. And actually globally, it's used for many things as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's quite, here too. it's like, it's a universal mm-hmm. thing, right? There are 60,000 year old burials um, in caves in Africa um, with ochre, but here in like Coast Salish country or the Northwest coast, it's used for spiritual things and it's used in rock art. Like there are artifact caches with ochre. So it's used for many things. And I wanted to do like a geochemical uh, analysis of ochre and like an ethnographic um, exploration about ritual uses. So like if ochre A was used for this and ochre B was used for that mm. in modern times, mm-hmm. I wanted to try and map those uses back onto the archeological record to speculate about activities and to show the continuity of culture. Like, Hey, mm-hmm. look at us. We're using this stuff for the same things. And maybe we were using it the same in the past. And then like, after my first year and, and learning about um, decolonizing methodologies in research, I realized that the people in my life who were excited about this topic were other archaeologists. And mm-hmm. when I broached the subject with nations that I'm related to or people with spiritual knowledge, they were kind of like, hey, you can't write about that. <laughs> yeah. Or like, maybe you could study that, but you can't publish about it. Or, you know, right. so I... I realized that like, you know, and, and it, I guess a lot of it came with the thought about like exploring the realities of community-based participatory research. And then as a community member, this is my question, but it's my mm-hmm. question as a, as an archeologist, as, as the graduate student researcher. So I, I shifted definitely away from that because I had also, um, encountered stuff like the early works of Boaz on the coast and writing about some of the more Northern communities and their, their rituals and their secret societies and, and how uncomfortable I felt reading those as a student of anthropology. And then I never wanted to make another indigenous anthropologist 
feel that same level of uncomfortable reading about our sacred stuff if I were writing about ritual and ochre on the Northwest Coast. So I, I turned away from that and I found a new discourse to challenge because I discovered, like I didn't discover it. I'm not, I'm not a discoverer, but I, I noticed <laughs> that there was a lot of, there were tools in the surface collected assemblages of community members uh, made of this really beautiful green tool stone. And um, I wanted to know more about that. And so I started looking into it and maybe about 10 years ago, it's, it entered the, the archeological literature um, and people were calling it green andesite. And I, I, and I remember in my first year of my undergrad, I was in geology 101 and I brought in a piece of this material to like the geology professor and was like, look at my green andesite. And she's like, how do you know that's green andesite? And I was like, well, you know, the archaeologist said that it was green andesite. Um, and she's like, well, you can't really know that. Like, you can't know it without a thin section. And, and uh, but then I just like, I had to put away that thought um, for all of these years. Um, but now I'm in a, in a position to explore, like how this tool stone became known as green andesite. And I've traced it back to like somebody's 1989 thesis in geology, a fellow by the name of Doug Reddy. And, and he wrote about andesitic dikes that crisscross the Indian River Valley, which is um, a watershed in the traditional territory of my people. And the the river comes down and enters Burrard Inlet, which is like um, Tsleil-Waututh, uh, we are the people of the inlet. And so this is our, our core territory. And this is where all of these artifacts in the stone have been found, like heavily concentrated in these assemblages. And like, I haven't looked at every rock from every arc site in the lower mainland, but I feel like these, um, like if I haven't seen it and people don't talk about it, um, because usually people are just like, there's andesite, and there's, um, or sorry, uh, if we go back, people are not talking about it. They just teach you that there are basalt artifacts and there are chert artifacts. And sometimes there's like rare things like obsidian and crystal, um, quartz crystal, but nobody is talking about this beautiful green material. Um, so I feel like it's concentrated in this area. And I wanted to look at um, how this dialogue is reproduced of like, oh, somebody said it's green andesite, so it must be green andesite, but no one has verified it geochemically. So that's what mm -hmm. I'm going to do. And I'm looking at this material with um, x-ray fluorescence, and I think that uh, we are also doing some thin slicing, and I want to find out what the material really is and, um, I guess, explore that a bit more. Well, okay. So this is actually reminding me a lot of the episode with Dr. Steves, um, which I believe by the time this airs, that episode should already be out, where we're talking about how a lot of things in science are really not based on science, <laughs> that there's a lot of assumptions mm -hmm. um, that nobody ever bothers to go back and actually test. Um, I can think of a good number uh, related to my work here and that the tribes are, are starting to, to really challenge that there's, you know, it's like that circle, circular referencing. Yes. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. Where all of a sudden people are like, okay, we don't, this doesn't match up with our experience and our oral history. And you keep telling us that this can't be because of this, but nobody's ever actually really examined that that's true, you know? Yeah. So it's, Someone's it's, it's just bringing like it back. Accepted, um, the accepted discourse, like what everyone is saying, mm -hmm. it must be true. And I mean, right. while I think that the ochre was a really great question, and I like I haven't abandoned it completely. And maybe in the future, I'll figure out a way to make it more appropriate. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm still challenging. It's a very small challenge. And it's a small discourse. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I'm still like holding true to that. 
And I think the other part of um, what inspired me is so many archaeologists do like for their grad work, they do an excavation and they analyze the excavation and they talk about it. But like as an indigenous student in, in archaeology, my heart hurts a little bit when I think about all of these um, assemblages from previously excavated sites that are just languishing on boxes. It's like the curatorial crisis, right? Of like, we just keep digging up stuff and Mm -hmm. not doing anything with it or writing up our report. And then it's just in a box and it's dusty. Like nobody ever looks at it again. And it's like, you know, Ziploc bags full of debitage, like the waste product of making stone tools. Nobody really gets excited about that. It's never going to be showcased in a museum. It's literally just going to live in a dusty box until somebody moves it to another shelf, right? I have a thought, I guess, and then a question (laughs) off of that. First of all, I just want to point out how... I mean, I'm. Sh- it might not have felt like that at the time, but like you're, how you're talking about how you realized that what you were looking at was kind of problematic and then, you know, gracefully basically adapted. And I feel like that's a really important lesson that a lot of people need to think about a little bit more in that, you know, like we all say and do things that are problematic, even, you know, if you're part of that group, like I'll find myself, you know, as a woman, like there's like sexist things that are ingrained in my head. But the important thing when you recognize that something's problematic or somebody else calls you on it is to like examine that and respond with grace instead of I feel like there's like this panic that can happen, you know what I mean? And lashing out. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, it's a good example that you just gave there of, of going, Oh, Hey, like I'm entrenched in this, um, you know, colonial culture too. And, um, there was a problematic moment and I'm addressing it and moving on and not turning it into being about you instead of about the thing. I don't know how to, I don't know if that was the most articulate, but. Do you mean like changing my research topic, like realizing studying ochre would be problematic or. Right. Right. So like, instead of like, I feel like some people get almost like more extreme when they're like challenged, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and I, I think it's a bit different because mm-hmm. I'm doing the challenging like, mm-hmm. like I was the person. So um, if it were an external challenge, maybe I would have got my hackles up and been defensive and dug mm-hmm. my heels in. But I think because it was an internal challenge and it came a lot, like I'm told that soul searching in grad school is a thing that happens. And if you don't yes. feel <laughs> like, like the ground is shaky and everything's uncertain and you know nothing, then you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that... It was, you know, like I talked about how my um, First Nations and Indigenous Studies, how those electives gave me balance. And I think that without those, I might have, A, never seen my original question as problematic, and B, I wouldn't have been able to respond with grace, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the way that you're talking about. Um, So I'm really grateful for that because all of these, like, you know, I um, in that class, like our first textbook was Linda Tui Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies, which I had read previously and like devoured every page of. But that was just the first of like seven textbooks I had to read for that class that term. But at the same time, they were all just brilliant indigenous scholars that that gave me courage almost. Um, mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that without those scholars and without exposure to um, those themes in a formal class setting, I, I wouldn't have had the capacity to respond to grace. I might have just like um, dropped out or something. I, and the fact that I had like a newborn who was like sort of colicky and like, <laughs> it was an adventure. I, I, I just, when I think back to those days, it's, I remember being sweaty and anxious and, and, and hormonal and like all of this, this confluence of, of very unique circumstances, really looking back now, it's comical, but at the time it was pretty intense. 
Yeah. Yeah, that sounds intense. <laughs> I, I don't even know how I made it through. I did. That's the important part. But yes. Yes. I like how you described it. Um, I like meeting it with grace. And I, I think that at the time I wouldn't have used that as a descriptor. But, you know, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I just I guess I just feel like here in the U.S. there's a lot of... Um, like when you try and work with somebody, sometimes, you know, if they're doing or saying something problematic, there's this like gut reaction of, oh, my God, you're calling me a racist or like, you know what I mean? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and people freak out. You know, I think that's kind of part of the whole like anti um, political correctness movement and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if people just took a second and like realize that you're not you're not attacking them as a person like Mm -hmm. we all mess up on a regular basis and it's not so much like whether you did or did not do something it's how you then respond to being challenged I guess or being you know held up to your highest self so I just I, I don't know I'd like to see people be able to take a minute, reflect, realize it's not really about them, first of all, and try and move forward instead of like this freak out that that happens a lot of the time. Yeah. No, I understand what you're saying completely. Yeah. <laughs> and now I can't remember what I was going to ask you because <laughs> we I, I went a little longer on this tangent than I meant to. We're actually basically at a second break point, but before we finish out, I guess I'll I'll start guiding us towards where we were talking about going next, which is I really want to hear more about um, your museum experience, also like experimental archaeology, indigenous archaeology, ethnography, all of these other topics that we haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> um, sure. Reconciliation, I mean... <laughs> So after the break, let's, um, we got a lot to talk about. So we will be right back. Hello, it's Jim Eagle. Please join us for the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Society's 11th Annual Two-Spirit Powell in person or online this year at San Francisco Fort Mason Center on Saturday, February 12th, 2022. Gore dance at noon and grand entry begins at 1 p.m. There will be over 60 vendors selling all types of indigenous products and crafts. Powell dancers from all over the U.S. will be competing in contests all day long. We'll also be having several delicious fried bread taco vendors. For more information, go to Bates.org. That's B-A-A-I-T-S dot org. COVID protocols will be in effect. See you there. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. All right, so we're back from our break, and like I mentioned, we got lots, lots and lots to talk about still. So let's let's move from your academic journey, which talked about your your bachelor's and your master's and your research, and let's talk a little bit more about your employment experience along the way, since you have some some really interesting experiences there. Sure. Yeah. Well. I mean, we talked about how I started as a First Nations rep and I worked for like part time through my first year um, of my undergrad. And then uh, I got pregnant with my older child um, pretty much right like when I started full time at university. That's like a a whole nother episode of podcasts. This is not a parenting (laughs) podcast, as much fun as that would be. Um, But basically, I stopped I stopped doing field work. Um, when I was pregnant and I focused more on lab work. So I did, I did a work learn position at SFU. Um, and part of that was like processing, um, materials from a field school that was undertaken, um, in partnership with my nation with Slaywatith and, um, Simon Fraser university. Um, we did a field school in Port Moody, which is, it's a section of Burrard Inlet that I mentioned 
uh, earlier is like our core territory and the people of the inlet. So we did a field school and then um, the director of that field school hired me to help process all the stuff that we found. Um, which was kind of fun. I have no aptitude for like zoology. Like I, I, (laughs) all the bones look the same to me. I don't even know, but that was kind of fun. Um, and then I think in my last year, the last year of my undergrad, I applied for this job basically for, uh, the Aboriginal Reconciliation Council at SFU, which was convened by the president. Um, basically Simon Fraser university was like, we have $9 million that we want to spend towards reconciliation efforts, but they wanted to consult. (laughs) I'm doing air quotes here. Consult, (laughs) um, with the local nations and the community on how they thought it should be spent. So, The Aboriginal Reconciliation Council included like deans, um, the director of the Indigenous Student Center on the reserve, or on sorry on on campus, and then they had a graduate student research assistant and an undergrad student research assistant. And I was hired as the undergrad um, student research assistant, and basically we just um, my job description was like updating Twitter and establishing like a social media presence, which proved really difficult for a short term project. And I ended up like making posters and and doing other things to get the campus engaged sort of, but we held some open forums and we, uh, we had like formal discussions with the three local nations and like the BC Métis Federation and like, we we had we consulted all of these external groups and then my last uh, they extended it to be um two semesters so two four month semesters it was originally only supposed to be one um, but they hired me for a second term and then uh, i guess four or five weeks after i graduated actually they uh presented the report that they wrote to the president in like a traditional ceremony kind of and I have feelings about it like I'm not sure if they have spent that money because basically it was like here's nine million dollars we only have three years to spend it it's one-time funding what do you think should happen and the students the indigenous students at SFU were like we need more space for our indigenous student center Uh and then the internal like the university indigenous administration they were like we want a great big monumental piece of architecture to like use for things and for like the general community which like the students didn't really agree with and then Mm -hmm. the nations were pretty much like we agree with the students so they identified a bunch of things that they could spend the money on some of which were like cultural safety training for staff and administration like and a lot of the indigenous student experience spoke to like racism in the classroom and like ignorant TAs and Mm -hmm. and just really Mm -hmm. questionable experiences that make post-secondary hard but are really commonplace like believe it or not (laughs) I mean right yeah so my feels around this are that I, as an alumni, I don't know if the president ever followed through. I would hope that he did because, I mean, he stood up in front of the nations in this really ceremonial setting and accepted our final report. But I don't, I don't know if, if all of these admin um, staff got the cultural safety training that we said they should spend the money on or... It's just, I guess it's hard because like, I know I'm in the same city as the university I did my undergrad at, but I ride transit. So it's really far away and I'm kind of removed from that community. Like uh, UBC is at the opposite end of the city and we live on campus. And so I'm pretty isolated from, from that side of the city. And I, I would, I would love to hear otherwise if, if he actually has followed through on our recommendations but it was an interesting experience. Nonetheless, I just don't know if anything came of it or if it was like 
a symbolic gesture of consultation, which <laughs> would, would not be unlike other examples of consultation in, you know, it, consultation with indigenous peoples is not always um, fruitful, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know about that. And that's the last thing I did with my undergrad. And then during my, this last year, I worked as a research assistant for my supervisor on a pretty cool project. It's like a a really, a rich team of international researchers. So some archaeologists from France, and they're working with a First Nation in the interior. And, um, but they're using French methods. And so they actually excavate in one centimeter levels, which is like, pretty refined um <laughs> for systematic excavation like here in bc we usually do like five centimeter levels and that's considered like like meticulous or it's usually 10 centimeter arbitrary levels that we're um excavating in and so one centimeter levels makes for this super uh in i don't know the data capture in one centimeter levels is um pretty intense and that yeah. work that work was actually really cool because the main goal of my project was to deal with the sediment samples and to figure out a way to create reproducible methodology so that we could have volunteers help with some of the processing because they have like a volunteer archaeology night here at UBC where like people with no experience can come and volunteer and help do actual archaeology analysis in the lab so they have these lab nights where they invite anybody to come um that's cool so part of my my work was to try and come up with a a foolproof methodology um very systematically laid out for someone who is not an archaeology student to be able to follow directions for science (laughs) so that was it was really interesting because there was a lot of trial and error and a little bit of experimenting. And like, ultimately we came up with a pretty solid methodology, but it took a long time and we didn't like the lab nights only runs during the the term. So it doesn't run over the summer. We didn't get our methodology together enough, um, quick enough for, for people to actually work on it. But maybe the next work learn student that my supervisor hires, we'll be able to get that show up and running um, for ARC nights in the fall, which would be cool. And then I can say that I had a small part in creating this methodology because it's a huge underutilized workforce, right? Like volunteers mm-hmm. can process stuff in the lab, you know, if they're properly trained and if methods are laid out properly. It's, yeah, it's an untapped wealth of resource. Plus then, I mean, then you have community investment. Somebody does it and they feel like they contributed, then they're invested and care about it. Or maybe they're just undergrads in like political science and they change their major and we have more thoughtful archaeologists. I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a hope. Um, (laughs) Or maybe they just learn a little bit more about, you know, the past of the area and, you know, the, the cultures that were there. The tribe, yeah, you know, like true. the First Nations. Thoughtful, um, thoughtful undergrads are the best. We all hope for those. Yes. Um, and then I think um, uh, you had asked about museum stuff. So mm-hmm. last summer, I received a call actually from my nation's government, from like chief and council, and they. Okay, um, that sounds terrifying. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like. You're like, oh, cool. I mean, I'm, it's like getting a call from the president. You know what I mean? <laughs> a little bit, except for I'm related. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. No, um, it was a pretty casual call. And they were just like, so um, the Museum of Vancouver, they are looking to have reps from the three uh, local nations on their board of directors. Um, and because you are like a student in anthropology and archaeology, like you're pretty much the best person for this job, we think. And I was essentially voluntold <laughs> to join this <laughs> board of directors. Like I make that joke, but that's like what it is. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, I, I think I'm the youngest person on the board of directors. And I pretty much like, um, so one of my professors is on, on the board of directors as well, Dr. Bruce Miller. And he's super cool. Um, he is a, 
cultural anthropologist, and he works with a lot of tribes in the States, um, like the uh, Upper Skagit River, those tribes. And he does a lot of litigation work. So he uses ethnography for good and not for evil. And I have a lot of respect (laughs) for him. um, And he's really lovely, but he sits on the board of directors as well. So like five minutes after I agreed to join the board of directors, I got a congratulatory email from him. Like they had publicized it immediately. And he was like, hey, you're joining the board. I'm on the board too. (laughs) And so he's like very excited. He's on my committee as well. And um, he's just, he's like a, a resource in himself. Like, Uh, He's just got this very long institutional memory and he knows about all sorts of like tribal goings on. Um, And I took a directed readings with him on Coast Salish ethnography and like Northwest Coast ethnography. And it was really eye opening because that's that's the course that um, helped me redeem it redeemed ethnography for me um, because (laughs) he was like, you have to think of all these publications of, of like, they're meeting a need, right? So the ethnographies Mm -hmm. that are published are the anthropologists and the ethnographers being like, this is what the market wants right now. And uh, he really encouraged us to read people's field notes and correspondence Hmm. and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I definitely, through that class, I developed more of a healthy respect for ethnography on the coast. Um, And then also he introduced us to all sorts of brilliant women ethnographers because um prior to that class i was totally like oh ethnography is men talking to men about men's lives like <laughs> and i was really i was really kind of jaded when i thought about ethnography but he he helped us to realize that there were some awesome early ethnographers that weren't actually men um, mm-hmm. And then we yeah. talked a lot about like the line between informant. I, I hate that word, but I hate that word. Sorry, <laughs> just throwing that out there. No I mean, worries. it sounds like like I literally I when I was doing medical anthropology work, I worked on a substance abuse project, and somebody wanted to call our interviewees informants, and I was just like, no, that is not happening. It's so <laughs> like, colonial. Not, yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry okay but no so we all, we also looked at um informants air quotes imagine my air mm-hmm. quotes and then as like tribal members and and indigenous um first nations people who like actually crossed the line and became ethnographers themselves which mm-hmm. was like also another thing that i hadn't thought about so yeah i have bruce miller to thank for a lot of like it, he redeemed ethnography for me because before I just thought of it as like guys talking to guys about guys and um, the ways that archaeologists kind of misuse ethnography sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then that ethnographic present and, and how culture stopped at contact. And so prior to that class, I didn't have a very good outlook of ethnography, but, but he really uh, opened my eyes to the good that it does. And so, yeah. And he, oh, yeah, okay. We were talking about the board. He was so excited when I joined the board and I've been on it for a year now and we like meet once a month and, and we talk about things. I also sit on um, the repatriation committee, which is super exciting because I know in the States there's NAGPRA, um, right. but I'm not really sure how all of that works. And here in Canada under the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out with like these... I don't think most Americans know what that is. Can you just... It was a big um, inquiry into uh, the residential school stuff that happened here in Canada. And basically, like the National Inquiry, they came out with a list of recommendations. Is that what it's called? It's 93 or 96. And they were just a list of recommendations that Canada Canada could do to fix, not fix things, but like work to start working towards making it better for Indigenous people and for all Canadian Canadians. And a lot of them center around um, education, but some of them are specifically to do with museums. Do you know about it? I know. Yeah, I know like the basics. The calls to Um, action. That's what they were called. Um, mm -hmm. um, Partially to redress the legacy of residential schools and advance the process of Canadian reconciliation, which I mean, uh, criticisms aside, like reconciliation has a lot of 
um, criticism. But the, the calls to action, I think, are really like solid steps that can be taken, like baby steps towards reconciliation. And some of those have to do with museums and some of them have to do with repatriation and like giving tribes uh, and First Nations the authority to deal with uh, like their ancestral remains or like spiritual objects of patrimony. I think that's the language that they use in NAGPRA, right? Yeah. So in NAGPRA, it's human remains, sacred objects, funerary objects, and uh, items of cultural patrimony are the four categories that fall under NAGPRA. So, I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation recommends, it's not exactly specifically uh, about repatriation, but that's part of it. So um, my work at the Museum of Vancouver, I also sit on the repatriation committee where we like talk about yeah the collections and repatriation where we talk about requests for things basically i guess it's a neat experience because i've never sat on the board of directors and (laughs) it's like that imposter syndrome stuff that comes with grad school like i really don't feel of the same caliber as everyone else on the board. (laughs) Like they're all older folks with established careers. Some of them are philanthropists, right? Like I, I'm a broke grad student. I don't have, I don't have the same means or the same lifestyle as some of these people, but I'm learning all about like Robert's rules of order and like how board meetings are operated. And I think it looks pretty cool on a resume. Yes. But I never would have like picked myself for it. I don't even know. And like chief and council, they are correct that that it's a good position for me. Um, But I I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have picked it for myself. So, (laughs) well, sometimes those are the things that makes it really important for you to be in that position. Yeah. Like all those things that make you feel like you're not right for it are also what that board probably needs. Yeah. I'm also working on saying yes to opportunities. So um, that's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today. (laughs) Yes. Well, good. I'm glad that you (laughs) had that as a goal. Yeah, no, it's so like when, when opportunities like this come up, I usually think like, nah, nobody really wants to hear about me and what I'm doing. Like I'm just a, a small person but then um you know some people are actually interested and that's really cool so I thank you for the opportunity to do this because I I get to think about my answers and toot my own horn a little bit yeah and let me tell you people will be interested in hearing about it (laughs) I mean I don't know that's what I love about this podcast I get to sit here and have an excuse to listen to really interesting people (laughs) Well, yay. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. Normally I'd want to talk to you anyway, but it's like now I have a reason. <laughs> you just like archaeologists. <laughs> I do. I I mean, I told you that before we got on the show. Like everybody in my life, almost everybody in my life, except for like some of the immediate ethnographers I work with are like all archaeologists. And it's funny because I'm not. But <laughs> <laughs> But apparently, yeah, I mean... I always hung out with the archaeologists in grad school. Um, well, me and like basically one or two other other cultural anthropologists. You know who you are if you're listening. Um, <laughs> we always hung out with the archaeologists because in a lot of ways, let's be honest, you guys are you're more fun. Like you go to a, an SAA's versus like SFAA's archaeology conferences are fun. Let's be yeah. honest. Well, it's because yeah. we play in the dirt. We're stylish. Yeah. 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 Whereas like, I don't know, cultural anthropologists were like, you would think that social schools would be like a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we're, we're a special bunch sometimes, but that's okay. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing with us. And I'm, I'm excited to share this episode. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an experience. (laughs) I love talking about myself. (laughs) Well, good. Good, good, good. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. So this is Jessica cutting in here at the end and letting everybody know that the rest of this episode will be available only to members. 
through the member site. Again, as I mentioned in previous episodes, basically anything over an hour, it's just, it's more expensive in terms of hosting fees and the, the sound quality goes way down. So the the network made a decision that anything over an hour will only be available to our members who we love because they help us do what we are doing here. So if you're interested in hearing more, um, she talks more about her work um, with her nation. She talks, she has a, a fun um, story with uh, experimental archaeology. She talks about um, public anthropology, museums, and what those are like for indigenous people. And she talks about her future and where she sees herself going. So it's a it's a good chunk of a segment. Um, it's really like its own whole separate segment. And you can check that out if you are a member or you can go on www.arcpodnet.com slash members and you can get a free 14 day trial. So if you're interested in checking out um, all of the perks of being a member and wanting to hear the rest of this episode, you can go on to www.arcpodnet.com slash members and become a member and try it out for 14 days, see if you like it. And in the meantime, hear the rest of this episode. So thank you again for those of you that are already members or supporting the network in all the different ways. We really need your help to keep this podcast going and to... Um, hopefully expand and do even more with it, but we need your help in order to do that. So www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pro.